Good evening, Hope Church. And visitors, we're glad you're here. And can you open up with us into the book of Jude as we continue our exposition? It is very easy, as you read the Old Testament, it's very easy, a mistake, but still, it's an easy mistake to make, to think that the, the Old Testament especially is outdated, is, is highly mythologized, and is hard to apply to our modern day. And, and then you go and experience the Christian landscape a bit. Maybe you just go to that thing which we call the evidence of total depravity, that is social media and, and the internet, and you find their church websites and pastor's sermons, and, and you come across the church landscape a little bit, all that which calls itself the church, and the harsh reality sets in. As we've looked at Jude's examples from the Old Testament of lust-filled pastors, homosexual mobs, false teachers, murderous brothers, money-hungry liars, we realize these are all too real in our own day. They are all too common in the church, and therefore the Old Testament has, has extremely applicable words to speak to us. And so just as in Jude's day, they would have often thought of the, the old, Old Testament as something they've evolved from, the, the old ancient sinners where, you know, no one's like uh, these sinners in Noah's day anymore. You know, we've grown from that. We've evolved. The, the modern world would have us think that we have evolved socially and individually and as a species to, to sort of be, be far beyond those, those ancient fools. And yet Jude's authoritative exhortation so far has been taking Old Testament examples and showing that they are all too applicable in our own day. And he's been using them as examples and illustrations for what we ought to look out for in the church. <coughs> so he's going to, going to, from verse 8 through 13 tonight, he's going to, in verse 8, list a bunch of sins. In verse 9 through 11, give us examples of those sins from the Old Testament. And then in verse 12 and 13, he, he brings it home as sort of an application to the false teaching crowd. We're going to read from verse 8 through 13. If you go back in your own time, it's a very short book, and you read this at least once a week, so to keep yourself up to date with what we'll be preaching through. We've only preached, I think, three other sermons prior to this one, so you can go and listen to those if you're going to start coming and, and uh, uh, being here regularly for the evenings. You can catch up because it has been a wild journey on what Jude has said so far as he compels the church to contend for the faith against those seeking to defile the faith from the inside. Verse 8. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting about the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." 
May the authoritative word of God find its home in our heart this evening as he blesses it and blesses us through it. Amen? Amen. Well, it's, it's no doubt that each time we come to the book of Jude, you sort of have to slap yourself awake from the, the postmodern, nice world that, that we live in that tries to tell everybody to find a safe space, that churches should be those safe spaces, and, and Christian Christianity, and, and definitely preaching and teaching, and definitely the pastor. It should always be this happy, affirming, nice, kind, soft sort of spoken reality. We, have to, we just slap ourselves as we come into the Bible, as we open up to the book of Jude, or rather he slaps us awake from that mindset because while everybody likes to talk about nice things, everybody would prefer that, and yet the reality is that as we open the Bible faithfully and line by line, verse by verse, apply it to our day, preach it to our modern context, we simply come across texts, and it's a lot more common than we think, we come across texts like this that wake us up to the harsh and ugly and dangerous reality of sin But not just sin, the sin that finds its way into the church in such a way that threatens the church's existence. This is not just uh, a Jude looking out to the culture and decrying and defaming sort of uh, uh, the the sins that are out there. He is more particularly looking within the church itself as an authoritative church leader of the first century and compelling that audience, that generation. He's compelling his church people for them to rise up and contend for the faith against all of the threats that oppose it. Some of those will come, no doubt, from the outside through, through state-funded persecution like they had in the first century, uh, through, through other religions and false teachers out there that seek openly to destroy the Christian faith. But also, and the more disastrous one is, those that creep in unnoticed, verse 4 said, affirm the grace of God but pervert the grace of God and then start rejecting the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ through the word. Those things, often called heretics, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever we might call them, those people are the greatest danger to the existence and purity of the church. Now he's going to give us, as we said in verse 8, a list of sins. Verse 9 through 11 is some of those examples which correlate to each of the sins he lists. Verse 12 and 13, he'll apply them. So first of all, we'll see the disrespecting of the angels. Secondly, rejecting parts of God's word you don't like. Thirdly, seeking the parts of the world you do like. And fourthly, rejecting authority. And then we'll go through the woes that Jude cries out onto these people. First of all, look at verse 8. He says, Yet in like manner also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He starts out in verse 8 with, Yet in like matter these people also. So we know that this is sort of a transition point. He's just spent the very colorful verse 5, 6, and 7 giving us other Old Testament examples of the Jews who perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief, the angels that are kept in gloomy darkness because they left heaven to pursue sexual relations with human women, and verse 7, the fornication and homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah that got them burned with sulfur from heaven. Now, in like manner... Just like those people of old who perished, in like manner, these people also. Which people? Verse 4. The people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were written about for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those people. Those people who are like the ancient people who were judged are among the the people that Jude is writing to today. And he says that they, one of their markers of sins is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
When he says glorious ones here, what, what he's meaning, what he's referring to is the, is the disrespect and the blasphemy against the spiritual realm and hierarchy, the angels and the demons. Now, we might get a little confused as to why he's saying using the word blasphemy against uh, people that are not God, but it is possible that this, this word uh, is used in sort of this, this spectrum. It's not just blasphemy to speak against God and his authority. It's also uh, blasphemy to speak against, not the same kind of blasphemy. It's not the first commandment of the ten type of blasphemy. It's, it's not that. It's, it's to, to, to speak disrespectfully of or degrading of something that has God given glory. And glory isn't always beautiful. Sometimes glory has been perverted and destroyed and corrupted like the demons, yet they have a glory. They're still referred to as the glorious ones. We know this because the, the example he then goes to start using is an example about not blaspheming Satan. Wrap your head around that one. It's possible to blaspheme Satan. Jude is such a, a, a colorful book. But this happens in, among false teachers. What they will usually do, the way that they, they sort of blaspheme demons, if we want to say it that way, is that they just claim this all-out authority over, over demons. You've probably heard people bind up Satan, send out the postcard letter. You got a demon, bring it in, we'll cast it out, just flat rate everybody, $20 on the door, we'll do it. It's, it's this kind of idea, and it was common in the early church as well. It's been common all throughout history that, that people assume to themselves this power and this authority to simply speak words against demons and see them flee. It's an error. They also blaspheme the angels by doing what many false teachers do in claiming that their messages that are erroneous and that are wrong and that are heretical came from angels, right? Mormonism. Joseph Smith goes into the, the, the forest and has a message from the angel Moroni. Hilarious that it sounds like moron, but we'll move on. Uh, the angel Moroni who gives to him these extra revelations. That is a blasphemy against that angel, the, the angelic office, because it is to say that those who are messengers of truth, the, the pure messengers of fire on behalf of God, they turn them into messengers of lies, though they never did such a thing. False teachers love to disrespect the angelic realm, both against the demonic and against the angels. They are unlike what Michael the archangel did to Satan. So look at verse uh, 9 and 10. And we have this uh, uh, uncommon example, the only place in Scripture this is referred to. Uh, and what he quotes is, uh, well, well, I'll just read it. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, not a story you hear in Sunday school because it's not in the Bible, uh, was contending with the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is actually a reference not to a biblical story, but to a, a, an apocryphal book that came about uh, in the early centuries uh, b before Jude was writing uh, called The Assumption of Moses. It was not inspired. It was not biblical. We don't even know if the story that it tells uh, uh, was ac actually happened at all. All that we know is that Jude references it and seems to think that the story that it told was accurate. Now, he might actually just be using an example. He might just be taking something from pop culture that everybody's familiar with and using it as an example. Like a preacher might say, your sin will turn you into, into a golem like that ring did to Smeagol, right? We might just say that and somebody in 200 years wonder if, if maybe Tolkien was actually a historian and those things happened in Middle Earth. 
Now, maybe he's doing that and we're not totally sure, but probably in the way that he speaks about it without any reservation, my conviction is, I won't even call it a conviction, my guess is that he's actually referring to an event that truly happened, that was handed down through tradition, but wasn't inspired into the account. What we do know is that in Deuteronomy 34, uh, God himself buried Moses. Uh, God himself told Moses, since he couldn't enter the promised land because he had been disobedient, he was taken up onto the mountain and God uh, sent, uh, well, well, God buried him and only God knew where he was. So Moses died alone and God buried him. Now maybe that was through a landslide, maybe he did a miraculous opening up the ground, burial and set a, a, a gravestone on top. We don't know, it could be extremely miraculous, it could seem rather uh, uh, non-eventful. The point though is that nobody knew where Moses was buried except of course those who see behind the physical realm. The story goes, or the assumption is, that, that the devil had some agenda, some reason that he could have taken that body of Moses and utilized it to undermine, to trick, to twist the truth that was given to the people of God. We need to remember that at the point of Moses' death, he's the only one who's ever written scripture. So that what the devil could have done, as we've seen him do other times throughout history, take that dead body, reanimate it, possess it, and use Moses' own body in the flesh to do miracles, to do whatever, and undo what was taught to the Israelites. This isn't even un unheard of. You might have heard in, in places where there is witchcraft or places where there is animism that there are, you know, these stories that come out about people raised from the dead and there are zombies. They're not zombies. They're demon-possessed dead bodies. That's why they're corroding, that's why they're corrupting, that's why they're so filthy and disgusting and, and doing these crazy things. It's because the spiritual realm infests and infects the physical realm and all sorts of false um, uh, religions and whatnot sort of play with that through their occultic kind of uh, ways. Anyway, we don't know, coming back to the point, we don't know why the devil, or even if the devil was ever wrestling with Michael over the body of Moses, but what we know is that the example that is set by Michael, whether fictitious or actually historical, is what Jude pulls up and says, we should be like that. Like what? Well, the story goes that uh, in this wrestle, at some point, Michael had the, uh, believed that the, uh, the, the, the devil was, was, was worth a bit of a rebuke. He needed somebody to smack him in the mouth, to give him a, give him a real hearing to, but he wasn't sent for that. He had been sent to defend the body of Moses, not rebuke Satan. Now, we might think, well, if you're defending the body from Satan, surely, surely included in that is the ability to just throw some, some smack talk while you're in the ring. Surely that's okay, but not to the angels who closely follow the commands of God. Even Michael, a high angel, did not speak against the devil, the highest and fallen angel, to do anything more than was given him to say. That's the point. The point is that he refused to do more than what was given him to do. He did not presume upon himself that authority and simply did what was told of him. And yet people in Jude's day, people even in our day, take upon themselves the most fantastical and amazing of ministries where it's their job to take your money and cleanse your household, cleanse the neighborhood, cleanse the community, cleanse the country. Heck, even blow raspberries at COVID away from whole continents. That's what they do. They think that they have these... You've obviously just not seen the clip. You would have found that very funny. Uh, there's my little pop culture reference now. I'm back to the Bible. 
They take these authorities on themselves to think that it is in their job description to fight and destroy the angelic realms and speak all sorts of nonsensical things over them, but they are destroyed, the verse says. Look at verse 10. But these people, blaspheming all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed. They are destroyed by their own foolishness. They're getting caught up in, without the baptism and and anointing of the Holy Spirit, they're getting caught up in and getting messed up in the worst of fights that you don't want to get yourself embroiled with. They're taking on demons. They're blaspheming Satan. They're insulting angels. We get a clue of what this can look like in Acts 19. When the sons of Sceva come against a demon-possessed man, these unbelieving Jewish people rejected Christ but wanted the power, come up against the, uh, the, 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 this, this man that was, that was possessed by demons. This was pretty common in the Jewish day. They would try all sorts of things to remove demons from people. And they heard that the name of Jesus worked, so they used the name of Jesus. The demon laughs at them because this demon knew they didn't have any spiritual power. And then the seven sons run out of the house bleeding and naked. Now, unlike the Michael and, uh, and, and Satan story, we don't need a scorecard. We don't need anybody to tell us who won that fight. When you go in and then you walk out of the ring naked and bleeding, you lost. The seven of them lost against this one guy with a demon who just thwarted them. That's the kind of thing that happens. They get themselves involved in what sounds fun, sounds miraculous, sounds impressive. They start talking themselves up and they themselves are destroyed by the very sin they are committing. To us, this whole idea... Let's just be honest, everything I've said so far in this sermon, you thought you came into a sound, normal, reformed, balanced church, and we're just talking about demons and angels. We think it sounds really weird until you see it. Until you do actually go to those churches that, that just obsess over, over the messages from angels, over, over the angelic beings in the room right now, I can see them, or, or ministering angels that I'm going to send to your house, or I'm going to pray over you, a protecting angel. It is so, so common. Or even the, the side on the demons. We know that people will just have whole ministries based around the, their authority over the demonic realm. They're convincing people either for money or for not, simply for the reputation that they gain. They, like unreasoning animals, Jude says, they follow their lusts and they just do the most ridiculous of things. Now let me just say on the side, maybe a question you're thinking is, but how come there is so much success in these fools, in these unreasoning animals, these, these false teachers? Why do they have so much success at casting out demons all the time if it's all folly? Friends, they don't. There's such a thing as paid actors. It is so, so common. Now, again, you think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It is so, so common to find in these big revival meetings, these huge uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, ministries that are based around this, people on the inside who are given the script when to fall over, when to convulse, what to testify. It is all so often made up, but not always made up. Often they do have actual yet deceptive spiritual power. The point is this. They are, as Jude says at the end of verse uh, 10, uh, sorry, at the beginning of verse 10, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. They have no idea what they're doing and they get themselves destroyed. They, like unreasoning animals, do what they understand instinctively. He's saying they're animals. They just don't understand what they're doing. The only thing they do understand is what they understand by their natural gut. Uh, They don't have theological, spiritual understanding of this stuff. They just feel like a dog. I want to do that. 
I will do that. That will get me reputation. I will do that. I, I have an instinct, an urge. The, the word in the Greek is just a, a natural desire. So you do it. You, you, never, you never find a dog. Maybe you do, because that's how humans work. But you never find a dog and ask him, what were you thinking chewing on my antique furniture? Of course we do, because we worship and talk to our dogs like they're kids. We shouldn't, though. But we say, what were you thinking? Why did you eat my... When I got you a chew toy. We expect that animals, dogs, will have something in their mind that says a chew toy is an appropriate thing to bark at, bark at and chew on, and this expensive Victorian mahogany chair is not. They don't have those categories. They're unreasoning animals. You never call down for an interview the bat that put droppings on your car. <laughs> Because they don't think in those categories. You say, you know, this was nicely cleaned. It's actually quite expensive. It's European. There was a Ford right here. Why? Did, why? why not the distinction? They don't know those distinctions. They're unreasoning, instinctive animals. And so it is with the false prophets and teachers who so disrespect the angelic realm. It sounds really weird and irrelevant until you see it all over the so-called evangelical church. Secondly, so they blaspheme the glorious ones, <coughs> and then they rely on their dreams. Look at verse 8. We're going to put this under the category of rejecting the parts of the Bible that you don't like. In verse 8, he said, these people relying on their dreams. This is often, these, these teachers often will speak about the dreams that they had, the visions that they had, the messages that God gave them. They'll, they'll pray for you, but first they'll, they'll tell you the picture that they see floating over you. They'll tell you, they'll tell you like a fortune cookie, always very vague, certain things like a horoscope that they believe to be true, that could be true for a hundred other people, but we just believe it. They do these sorts of things, relying on their dreams, because it undermines the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. It is contrary to what verse 3 has told us, that there is a faith once and for all revealed to the apostles, delivered to the saints. One faith. No more revelation needed to know how to worship God, to know how to live godly lives in Christ, to know how to be saved or to know how to be filled with the fullness of the Spirit. No more revelations ever needed for that. You've got a problem in your life of sin or weakness or depression or lack of assurance. You have any problem like that, you don't need a spiritual guru with a vision. You need more Bible. Maybe lots of one-on-one -on -one time. Cool, let's do that as well. But what you need is more Bible. It is contrary to the idea these people's idea of, of dreams, relying on their dreams, and, and that really is the sin, the, the relying on dreams. Like, no one can read the Bible and come away with the conclusion that God couldn't speak through dreams. That God doesn't speak to anybody ever throughout history outside of the Bible. Okay, even, I'm a charismatic, I'm, I'm going to say that even God may use other venues in order to, to lead or guide in a moment, but those things are not what you rely on. Uh, like, like, I mean, if, if you're in the army, when you're sent out on a long hike, a, a long journey, it's possible that on your journey you walk past a farm and find some fruit that's not being watched. Possible. But you don't rely on that. You rely on the thing that's given to you by your general, which is the food pack in your backpack. That's what you rely on. You rely on that thing given for all that you need. Sometimes you might walk past a tree and, hey, there's an apple. It is like that, that while God has revealed that there are times that he has said some things and sometimes to some people through, through kinds of messages or dreams or whatnot, those people take the fanciful, they make it the normal, they rely on it and call you unspiritual if you question the things they're dreaming up in their head. 
It's a reliance on that which is unstable, which is unsure. It undercuts and undermines the inspiration, inerrancy, authoritative sufficiency of the Bible. Let's go through those again. The inspiration of the Bible is that men have written the Bible, but as they were filled with the breath of God and carried by the Spirit of God to write precisely what God wished them to write. This leads necessarily to the next doctrine of Scripture, which is the inerrancy of Scripture. It has no errors. It affirms as true only what is true. Everything else is tested by the final authority of Scripture because it is inerrant. It is inspired by God. Therefore, like God, it is inerrant, unable to err. Thirdly, therefore, it is authoritative. It is the final word for all belief and all practice in the world. And therefore, it is sufficient. We don't need those dreams. We don't need the updates on Christianity. We don't need to progress. We don't need messages from angels. We have the final sufficient word. These people don't believe that. They obsess over their dreams. This is similar to Cain. The example that we get that follows this theme is uh, in verse 11. He says, For they walked in the way of Cain. The way of Cain is a way of ignoring what God has said. The first introduction we have of, of Cain's behavior is when he had ignored God's words about what to sacrifice and was, uh, and was not offering the acceptable sacrifice like Abel was. The next thing we learn about Cain in Genesis 4 is that God is speaking to him, telling him and exhorting him to be careful of the sin which lies close at hand. But Cain again ignores God's warning and, uh, about his hatred of his brother Abel. So Cain heard sermons. He was a part of that first little family church with Adam and Eve and his brother Abel and others. He had a visitation and an exhortation from God himself, but his key characteristic, which led to all of his other sins, was ignoring the word of God. He was okay with some of it. God's want, God wants sacrifices. He was not okay with all of it. The sacrifices have to be lambs. He edited God's word. He rejected the parts of God's word that he did not like. This is Cain's sin, and this is how it was showing up in Jude's day. They ignored and rejected the parts of God's word that they did not like. They gave lip service to the Bible. I mean, how common is this that we'll find? You can go onto their website, and they'll say, we believe in the 66 books inspired by the Spirit. It's blah, blah, blah. You go to their services. It's all about the dreams. It's all about the miracles. It's all about your, your visitation from God today, your breakthrough. Saying we believe in the Bible, saying we believe that God's word is authoritative is entirely different in Jude's mind from being those who contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Will you be that kind of Christian? Will this be that kind of church? 50 years from now, who knows where I'll be. If I'm alive, I'll still be preaching the Bible. My throat will be sore. My words will still be getting muddled up. My hands will be callous from holding the sword. My knuckles will be callous from punching out heretics. All of that. I will be standing on the word of God. Will you? Because no one falls away from the faith who didn't have faithful pastors pleading with them not to. Every person in this room has to take stock of themselves, has to check themselves, has to ask God to reveal to themselves in their heart where you stand before God, whether you are playing the game or contending for the true faith by which you have been united to Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as too careful about this. There is no such thing as preaching on this too much or too authoritatively or too loudly. Don't email me. 
There is no such thing as taking this too urgently. Contend, not just for the faith external, but for your own faith, for your own soul. Have you repented and believed in this? Do you come alive to the word of God and all of it, or like Cain? Do we prefer some parts to others and edit out parts that we do not like? Do you break commandments because you really do not know them and you don't care to to know them? Like Cain, Jude's exhortation is that those people will be judged either in this life or in the next. And the third part is we see that they seek the parts of the world that they do like. The first is that they blaspheme angels. The second is that they reject parts of the word they don't like. And then they do accept parts of the world into Christianity, into the church, that they do like. Look at this. uh, In verse 8, he says, These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. And we've already seen back in verse 7 a great example of, that Jude gave to us of Sodom and Gomorrah about their sexual immorality and their fornication and their twisted desires of homosexuality. Yet again here he refers to the people of his day, those, tw- those, those twisted Christians seeking to, to turn aside the grace of God and the authority of Christ. He says they defile the flesh. Homosexuality, fornication, adultery, immodest clothing and behavior, pornography have always been favorite sins to excuse, normalize, and indulge in. They've always been the favorite to find a a wiggle room in to get that inside normal Christian living. It is also called here Balaam's error in verse 11. Halfway through verse 11. So he said, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam is somebody that we learn about. He was a, he was a non-Jewish Old Testament prophet that was not really related particularly or sent particularly by Yahweh, the true God. He had somehow maybe demonic, sometimes he had been given messages from God and God did not distinguish. But what we know is that Balaam was an ungodly man who had sometimes been given messages to speak from the true God, uh, sometimes maybe from the false demons and whatnot, but they were coming true. He he was somebody that was fairly reliable. And so as the Israelites came past the, the Midianites and the Moabites, the Midianites and the Moabites, especially Balak, the king, got, got concerned about them and wanted them to be cursed. But instead of fighting them in, in a war, he got Balaam, the prophet, to curse them. You curse them and they'll die. And Balaam three times attempts to access the divine realm in order to curse them. But each time what comes out of his mouth is a rich, powerful blessing upon the people of God. He just couldn't help himself. He he said, I'm just going to say whatever I tap into. Don't get me in trouble. He taps in. He pours out blessings. says, I told you so. I'm sorry. This is what I got. Three times it happens. So you start to think after about three chapters of this, I think Balaam's a good guy. And then he realizes that there's a way he can make money, even if it's not by cursing them. He says, you know, God has blessed them. You can't curse them. God has preserved them. You can't kill them. I mean, the only person who can kill them is God. Oh, I've got an idea. Get God to kill him. I assume that, Balak, in your kingdom, there are some young, pretty virgins. Send them down to the border, flirt with the gents, get them going, get them physical, and then convince those men in their immorality that they also have to sacrifice to their gods. Right? Let, let's just remember, there is no ends that men will not go to in order to get those physical pleasures. Yeah, they don't care. They'll make the sacrifices. If that's what it costs, we'll do that as long as they get these girls. That's what they did. 
On Balaam's advice, this very tricky, cunning man, for the sake of monetary gain, advised the king how to go in and pervert the the gentlemen of Israel. And in that day, 24,000 Israelites were slaughtered for their sin of sexual immorality and their sin of preferring a God that allows sexual immorality. 24,000 dead in a day plus the guy that was speared through by the very zealous Phinehas. But that's a great story. Go and read Numbers 22 through 25. He had, for the sake of gain, taught people how to commit sexual immorality. This is another tip for for when you have a false teacher on your hands, for when you have people in the congregation that need to be put out. Uh, Just as Balaam did, so Jude is telling the people of his day, there are teachers out there who want to take your money and tempt the people to sin. Blaspheming angels, preferring dreams to the Bible, ignoring parts of the Bible you don't like, teaching falsely about sexual morality and getting paid to do it. That sounds like the job description of 50% of the pastors out there today. That's why you can drive 10 minutes and find 30 churches from this center point. One or two of them, would not embody that. Our day is a dark day. Our day, as much as any day, needs to hear and heed Jude's commandment and exhortation, contend for the faith. Leave no one on the sidelines. Leave no one sitting on the benches. Get yourselves, every one of you, into the trenches. More churches need planning. More people need saving. More gospel needs preaching. More faith needs contending for. Stop sitting still. How many of us, what are you doing in your life? In what way has the kingdom advanced because you have opened up your home for the faith to be taught? Because you have exerted your energy in order to see people added to the kingdom. How many people know Jesus, have their errors refuted, have the gospel explained to them because you broke up a sweat and cared enough to pray and act? This is the exhortation of Jude. It is a dark day in the first century when he realizes, as he said in verse 3, I wanted to write a nice letter, but I was urged to compel you to contend. And so today we must do the same. Fourthly, the thing that he brings up, look back at verse 4. He says, they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority. We've already seen this sort of brought up in the theme of verse 6. When the angels in heaven... After uh, 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 the first fall of, of before Genesis 3, back in Genesis 6, further on, the angels in heaven refused to submit to God's beauty in the created order, refused to stay in heaven with their designated authority, and decided, decided rather to seek their own pleasure and reject the authority of God and receive autonomy from God. And this was so that they could, uh, re- uh, what this leads to rather, this idea of rejecting authority, which just comes up over and over again in Jude. And I keep on reminding us, we just don't think that's like the big mark of sinners and false teachers or, or things we need to be careful of, but we do. Rejecting and despising authority, it, it's so common. We, of course, it's, it's the extreme example that are the angels leaving heaven, but it's in every one of us where we have, have the kind of despising of authority that is over us. And it leads to, once we reject God's authority, it always leads to the rejection of all other God-given hierarchy. This is why in the fifth commandment, and it is of such a prominent place in being the fifth commandment that God gives to us, the fifth commandment is uh, the first of the second table, and it is so important, it tells us, honor our mother and father. 
Now, it doesn't just mean respect your mother and father, but embedded into that, the Puritans would explain, is embedded into that the, the realization that when children are told and taught to honor their father and mother, they are in essence learning to respect and honor all God-given authority, and that will flow out into respect of church leadership, respect to employment leadership, respect to state authority, and respect, of course, ultimately to God's authority. It is, in the, it is in the family unit where we learn what authority given by God looks like. The rejection of it always leads to societal chaos. When children do not obey their parents, then you have employ- they grow up to become employees, if they're not on the dole, become employees who reject against employers' authority. Wives reject their husband's authority. The populace rejects the appropriate power of the state, and what that leads to is societal chaos. Not immediately, but it comes. Societal chaos and the disrespect of all other God-given authority. It also happens in the church. As verse 4 have told us, they, they deny the lordship of Christ, and what comes along with that is the rejection of God's given church authorities and eldership. And this may be maybe the elders and the members both committing this sin. Elders who reject the authority of submission to the membership or to the demands of the word of God. Members who reject the authority of the elders and the biblical requirements for Christians. It happens in many ways, but it is an ugly thing to see. People rejecting authority, and it is a mark of one of the first signs of the false teachers. We'll look at verse 11 as we see his, his fourth Uh, 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 historical example from the Old Testament. He refers to Korah's rebellion. They have gone the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. You'll go and read this in Numbers 16, that Korah, back in the first generation, saved from the Exodus, Korah, with a number of the people of Israel, he himself was a Levite, but was not one of the authoritative ones. With a number of the people of Israel, 250 of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, so against the chief prophet and the chief priest, and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So always the line of those who hate authority is that you're exalting yourselves. No, God had exalted Aaron and Moses. They rejected and despised the authority. They, therefore, what God did in that day was open the mouth of the earth up. They fell into darkness. It closed in over them. The belly of the earth consumed these authority-hating men, these well-known people. The sin is to think that you have no authority over us, Moses. There is no genuine authority under God. God says we're all equal. We're all holy. Didn't you say to us that we're a kingdom of priests? Yes. And that there's such a thing as hierarchy. God said both. It's almost true. His sin was the sin of egalitarianism. The sin that says we're all equal, therefore there should be no distinctions of opportunities or of roles. We should all be the same. Equal means sameness. Today, the sin of Korah looks like, looks like this. <clears throat> Equality means that everybody gets the same roles and there's nothing men can do in the church that women can't do. Welcome to Korah's rebellion. 
Some women will say that. Some men will say that. Biblical women will not say that. Biblical men will not say that. They'll say, God says all are created in his image. Yes. And God also said that women can't be elders. Neither can men who think that women can be elders. God says we're all priests in Christ. Yes. And he said that only men can be pastors and elders. God says in Jesus there is no male or female. Yes. And yet women can't be pastors. God says we submit to each other, not male to females in marriage. Uh, sorry, females to male in marriage. Well, he does say submit to each other. And then he says, wives submit to your husband. It is not, uh, what, he's, what he's getting at here is not a statement on the abuse of authority. Of course that's possible. What he's getting at is the rejection of God-given authority. Or it might come up in another, another way, the, the rebellion of Korah about equality and egalitarianism. He'll even use the line of Korah to say, we're all holy. I was reading something by a pastor making this argument just this week. God smiles on all sexualities. All love is holy to God because God is love. I'm quoting them. We are all holy. No. Only heterosexual, one man, one woman marriage is where one, becoming one flesh is acceptable. But God said we are all made in his image. Yes, but that image is broken so that we are marred and infected by sin so that you cannot assume is okay what you desire in your flesh. But God says we are all his children. Wrong. He says that people who twist scripture are children of the devil. Korah's religion was the right religion. You won't hear Korah trying to say that we need to worship a different God. He was preaching the right religion, just a little bit more inclusive. His sin was the sin of tolerance. And you actually start to see as you study scripture the relationship between a sinful tolerance and the destruction of all authority. They have to go hand in hand. Because in order to allow an unlimited tolerance of all sins and lifestyles, you need to first remove that there is any hierarchy where people get to say that certain lifestyles or acts are more or less sinful than others. And once you've removed that, then who is anybody to tell us that anybody is anything more than anybody else? Rejection of authority goes hand in hand with a sinful tolerance of sin. It was Korah's rebellion. Who are you to say you are anything over us? It is the sin of egalitarianism that weeds itself into the church. <clears throat> and the church is urged by Jude to contend in such a manner that leaves none of these false ideas, behaviors, or, or, or ideologies standing, but destroy every single one of them. The blaspheming of angels, the preferring of dreams to the Bible, the ignoring parts of the Bible that you don't like, the teaching falsely about sexuality and getting paid for it, the rejecting God-given authority, the tolerating of culturally popular sins into the church. We must put them all to death, and it starts inside of each one of us. So here's the first part. We must put these things where we notice them. We must put ourselves on the altar of assessment and put these things to death in us. What things that we've spoken about tonight do you realize are actually quite active in your Christian, Christian ideology? Do you realize that you hate authority? That you, you actually like the involvement of quite magical, uh, uh, demonic and, and angelic visitations? You, you do cut out parts of the Bible that you don't like. You, you do allow for excuses to be made around sexuality, that the flesh might be defiled. Also in our church, 
We must put these teachings out through the right proclamation of the word and gospel and the whole counsel of God. And then we put those people out who obstinately promote these things in Jesus' name. And thirdly, in our culture, we put the folly of these things, these ideologies, these beliefs, we put the folly of those things on display by proclaiming the truth of God. And we, re we preach repentance from them unto Christ. Where that fails, the gangrene grows up through the church so that Jude's exhortation is ignored. And verse 12 through 13 flows out of that. Look at verse 12 and verse 13. He just sends out a whole bunch of amazingly poetic yet powerful insults. He says in the beginning of verse 11, woe to them. This was a prophetic woe. This is what the prophets would go in. This is what Jesus also did in his prophetic ministry. It's the, it's the, uh, the other way of saying God's judgment is coming on you. Woe to them. Woe to you. We, we hear this done in all of the prophets. And so Jude picks up this prophetic woe. Woe to them. Look at verse 12. For they are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. That is both a warning and a rebuke. The idea of the, the hidden reefs is that at their love feasts, of course, they would have big fellowship meals. Uh, often they would have communion sort of tied into that whole big church-wide love feast. Um, I'm glad they got rid of the name of that, at least through church history. But they, he calls them the hidden reefs. If you're a sailor... If you're out in the ocean, hidden reefs are extremely dangerous to every life on board and all of your stock. It will see the destruction of your vessel and every soul on board, and you can't see them. This is what false teachers are like. They're among you. They are here. If we do not preach and proclaim rightly without apology, they will be in the way of the, of the church as a ship, and it will be sunk. But contenders will be aware. Contenders will notice. Contenders will proclaim and not let that kind of thing destroy the witness of the church by sinking the ship. It's also a bit of a rebuke that he says, they feast with you without fear. How horrible is it to realize that false believers, sinful livers are among you and they don't really feel out of place. You're very welcoming to them. You're overly hospitable. Truth has taken a hit for the sake of a warm fellowship lunch. And is a sin. He says, they're feasting with you without fear. Then he says, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds are those people who are entrusted to feed and protect the sheep. And instead what they're doing by feeding themselves, and, and just put your thinking caps on for a moment, what do you think they're eating as they're out in the, in the very distant and rural plains where all that's around them is lamb chops on legs? They're eating the sheep. These shepherds feeding themselves are not eating the sheep muck or the grass. They're eating the sheep. This is a perfect picture of the false teachers. They are given and ordained by God into the ministry of watching out for souls. And they fleece the flock, take their wool, take their money, live in luxurious lives, and send these people to an eternal hell. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They don't contend. They don't preach sin. That's not their ministry. They do not warn their people. They don't discipline the church. They make excuses for God's word. They apologize for Jesus' teaching. They take people's money and give them no spiritual help. But contenders notice. Contenders leave churches like that. Contenders confront and speak to pastors like that. Contenders are hungry for the truth and demand that they are fed it. 
Thirdly, he calls them waterless clouds. He'll say they're fruitless trees. They're twice dead. They're uprooted. This whole idea is that they are, they are things that promise life, but actually give no benefit whatsoever. If you see a cloud coming and you're in the desert, you are extremely happy, or if you're a farmer in an agricultural area, you're extremely happy that rain will be coming. You usually think that clouds mean water, and you'll be excused for making that assumption. False teachers are like those things. They are like a tree that once you come to it is dead. They are like a cloud that you are hoping to bring some spiritual help, and once they actually open up the Bible for you, you're worse than you began. You ran to where you thought you would receive spiritual help. You're just more tired for having run. They promise spiritual help. They leave you usually poorer, abused, and unhelped spiritually. People run to these things thinking they will find benefit. But the false churches and these Christians are dead by nature. They are doubly cursed by God. This is why they're twice dead. They're dead in themselves. And then by becoming false teachers, God curses them again like Jesus cursed the fig tree. It had no fruit, and then he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. They are what we have said, apostates, unable to repent and return to the truth. Fourthly, he says, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame. They are doing things, they are just being tossed about by their desires, doing things in public that ought not to be seen, indecent things. They approve of them and toss about their own indecency. And fifthly, they are wandering stars. This is probably meant to refer to shooting stars. Uh, they are things that, uh, that aren't a part of the usual, ordinary structure of the heavens. They're, they're those things that you just see for a moment with a flash, and it's very impressive, and, and you run to try and see it, and you're annoyed if you didn't see it, and, and people believe it's so beautiful, but it gives absolutely no benefit. No, no one ever had a more healthy plant because it has a high degree of uh, shooting stars over the top of it. No one ever got a good and healthy amount of vitamin D from, from a shooting star. The only uh, benefit of a shooting star is that it makes an impressive story. makes for a good photo. These are the guys. They, they, they come into town. They'll have their big meeting. Everybody has a great story. They saw the spirit fall. They felt the presence and all of that in the smoke machine, and then they leave, leaving people unhelped, unaided, unbenefited. They are the wandering stars. <clears throat> and so are these teachers. These Bible-denying, angel-obsessed, dream-addicted, authority-rejecting, tolerance-preaching, money-hungry liars, they are unreasoning animals. And Jude is desperate that the church heed his warning and his exhortation. Judgment is coming for these types of people as they came upon the people of old. These people who follow their dreams, their hearts, and their desires. So look at the last line that he gives us tonight in verse 13. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. There is an eternal judgment coming. There is such thing as a judgment day when God wraps up this earth and brings all living beings to him for a final record of judgment, to put on display his justice. And in order to exalt his justice, he will put many into the eternal fires of hell with bodies that will last there, and he will put the grand and great majority redeemed through Jesus Christ and faith in him into the glories of heaven in our exalted bodies. It is a reality. It is not shakeable, questionable, or changeable. It happens. Don't get ex uh, uh, embarrassed of or sorry for that doctrine. It is true. It is the basis of all justice that God will pour it all out. And yet, 
what we must do, if that is a disgusting thought, if it, is a, if it is a gut-churning thought to think of souls cast into an eternal hell, don't apologize for it. Don't change the word of God like Cain. Preach the gospel and contend so that people may be plucked from the fire. And if you're not a believer, if all of this just sounds like way too much judgment coming from Jude, this stuff just sounds like antiquated old belief that we thought we had evolved from, better get used to it. This truth is not going anywhere. It's going to take over the world. But the invitation is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of denying the day of judgment, denying the reality of your sin, denying the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would bend your knee in your heart tonight. However much of an enemy you are to God, however much you embody all of the sin that we've talked about to you, Jesus offers and demands that you make good on the offer to be forgiven, to enter into his love, to be accepted by God because he died he went into, on the cross, the gloom of darkness, taking on an, an eternal wrath in his body on the cross so that you can escape it, go free, and be forgiven. So believe today and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, in the gospel, we have the good news that we are made one with Jesus. We are given all of the benefits that he earned, and we are reconciled to you, who was once our enemy, the most fearful of enemies, the most just of enemies, the most omnipotent of enemies. And yet, Lord, we are now your friends, the people in this space-time history. We are, we are joined to you by faith through Jesus Christ. We thank you for that glorious reality. We thank you that we, we await uh, heaven with you after we die. And then further into the future, the recreated new heavens and new earth, we, we await that day, Lord. We, we pine for that day. And yet we do not want to get into a mindset where we are, we are just hoping for that day and wishing away the time that we spend on earth. Rather, would you remind us that the church is meant to be the pillar and buttress of truth? Would you help us to heed Jude's warning, his exhortation, his, his coachly, fatherly encouragement to get up, straighten our knees, put our socks on, and fight? Father God, would you, would you empower us to do that? Would you give us the weaponry that we need, which is the understanding of the truth, the empowerment of your spirit, and a love of Christ that would compel us? Would you give that to us so that we can contend, we can evangelize, we can serve, we can bring glory to Jesus Christ? And Father God, I pray for all those in this room who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this moment, stand before you with no mediator, no help, no beneficiary, no anybody to stand in between and, and beg their case. They just stand before you dressed in all of their sins. I pray, Lord God, that you would show, justice, that you would show mercy, that you would show grace in the justice that you poured out in Jesus, that you would give to them a righteous heart that you would give to them a, a faith to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, that, that you, would, you would embrace them into your eternal family and kingdom through the mercy that you poured out in Jesus. Father God, redeem many. Use us as a weapon in this world for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.